Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time you are tuning in. Welcome to Homesteading and Gardening in the Suburbs. I'm Emma from Misfit Gardening and last week we touched a little on um, permaculture and ecology and today um, I'm stepping back a teeny bit from the principles um, to talk a bit more about zones and some sector analysis to kind of dig into um, some of the actual design methods of permaculture design. But I am going to talk briefly about some of the main principles of permaculture because it is really important to understand um, this and there's a lot of information about the ethics behind permaculture and what some of these principles are there's lots and lots of different principles but I mean really there's three main ethics to permaculture which is number one care of the earth number two care of people and three fair shares or distribution of goods and that are surplus to our needs throughout the system or the community so how do these main ethics fit with your homestead right earth care might be things like um, you want to stop using herbicides in the garden or pesticides maybe you want to encourage native butterflies with milkweed perhaps you're wanting to use things from your homestead in the garden without bringing in anything else right maybe you're wanting to not have to bring in compost anymore right as an example um, it could be improving soil or water health and maybe reducing soil erosion and increasing biodiversity. Right? There's lots of things that earth care could be. So what does it mean for you and your homestead? Um, people care. That could be working together to build something like working with your neighbours or your friends. It could be something like creating local jobs or trades. It might be being able to provide food for your family or providing food locally in a city. It could be improving health. It might be providing medicines um, for people like if you're into medicinal herbs and those kind of things. It could also be providing education or training. There's lots of things that people care could be as well. So what are those when it comes to you personally, but also as it fits to your homestead? Now, fair shares, um, so there's a bunch of different examples of this. So it could be trading surplus for something that is needed. So that could be swapping beans for potatoes with a neighbor, perhaps. But it also could be trading surplus for money, right? You can't pay the mortgage by giving the bank a basket of fresh veggies, but you can pay the mortgage with money, right? Fair shares could also be things like meaningful employment for somebody, um, engaging local artisans or crafters. For example, if you have hazel and willow growing, um, you might be able to partner with a local artisan who makes baskets or maybe they make plant obelisks or trellis or garden archways or even wattle fencing. Or maybe that's something you could do for the local community. Or maybe it's partnering with a local restaurant or a chef who's really into seasonal and local foods. Right? There's a few things, you know, that that could be. And it's not strictly about, you know, just trading goods and services for nothing or for money. There's lots of things that this entails. But what does it mean to you and what does it mean to your homestead? I'm sure you can think of lots of examples for these three things and start to think about, you know, how they influence you and what you're planning on doing with your homestead too. For those of you who are a little bit more literal, there are um, other principles that 
you know kind of help for those of us who are a bit more practically minded so let's go through those so the first one is everything works in at least two ways this might be a plant that is grown or it could be a path that's put in like let's take morning glory vine growing over a trellis on a deck it's providing shade on the deck but also blooms to feed local pollinators and um, we want to be seeing solutions not problems so if we're saying like oh there's a problem with a prevailing wind that's super cold could we actually leverage that prevailing wind for something else could we use um, that area to maybe act as a cold storage area for example um, so we're leveraging something that's already happening there rather than seeing it as a problem uh, we want to be making things pay not necessarily financially pay but it could be you know we want to be using things that are going to provide something for us but then something else for something along the chain right um the the common um example is kind of the permaculture chicken right how how can we you know use something in the permaculture system and then how can we reuse it and reuse it and reuse it and reuse it as many times so we want to be using everything to its highest ability so let's say like we're taking scraps out of the kitchen those scraps are going to feed the chickens the chickens are you know eating those scraps they're providing eggs um maybe we turn out the chickens onto a garden bed so they till it over for us they're fertilizing it for us right you know how how are we reusing things um and you know when it comes to make things pay it's also a case of like what are we not then needing to buy in externally because we're already using things that we already have and using things on the homestead um bring food back to the city so that's kind of falling in with you know local food and having things locally really cutting out those um food miles right that we've got at the minute because things you know we're globally sourcing food right we want to have things year round like apples oranges bananas right those things are not a year round food crop and are definitely not something you know that happens naturally in different parts of, of the world so being a lot more um cognizant of where our food is coming from but also maybe looking back to having more seasonal food and having it locally um helping people be self-reliant so having some of these skills where we're able to do things ourselves um minimizing maintenance this could be like less weeding and watering for you less pruning or less having to tend something right it's a lot less input that you're having to provide and also minimizing energy input this could be less input from you as the gardener but it also could be less energy from you know other means too so like we're we're using things to an advantage and we're working with nature rather than against and of course maximizing yield right we always want to be getting more out of the system and things that we're putting in so as we begin to design our permaculture homestead we want to be keeping these things in mind and you'll find as you get into permaculture like we're constantly kind of going back to the principles and you know how is this 
you know, thing that we're trying to create or this element that we're trying to add in, how does that work with the permaculture principles and how does that work with the area and the people that we are trying to create this for like how does this work in the the wider system as we talked about last week permaculture is very heavy on the design and the analysis up front so that there's less work later right we want to be designing our um, landscape so that it's going to maximize things and then we're really just going to be you know the bigger push is going to be getting everything planted but then we're wanting to leverage you know this natural succession of an area we want to help pull our design through to to that level of permanence where we've got this system set up and it's working you know, things are ticking over and there's not a giant input that's needed from us to be able to provide some of these things. So I want to talk about zones next. Um, zones are based on their energy and intensity of use and you'll hear about permaculture zones. They start at zone zero with the most energy consumption and go to zone five, which is the least. And if you can imagine it as like, concentric circles around a focal point so zone zero is typically the house or home it's where human energy is readily available it's also a major polluter in permaculture terms as things are not readily reused in the home as they are out in the garden right there's a lot of non-renewable energy that's being used there's a lot of waste coming out of the home but the home would be zone zero so that would be our very inner circle and then all of the other zones one two three four and five are kind of all increasing from there with zone five being the furthest so let's talk about what zone one would be so this is closest to the house and it's the main food garden um, it requires a lot of work to keep things intensively planted and productive so it being close to the house reduces effort and energy in getting to it it also means that you're more likely to be getting out there and tending your garden and using things more often because you're able to see like oh i've got a you know whatever is ripe um let's pull up these turnips pick these tomatoes right we've got stuff that needs to be used so with it being closer to the house you're more likely to see these things whereas you know if you've got a hike down half an acre you might not be seeing things that are going to be readily available um you know to eat in the garden and you're not going to be seeing pest damage and stuff as much because you've got to make that mental effort like oh i need to go out and do that like i need to take that walk and go go do that but again these zones that happen are very dependent on um, how you and your family interact with the land and that's something that um, you know doesn't often get brought up when we're going through permaculture design but how do you interact with your property how do other people in your family interact with the property and where some of these zones would be better placed based on those interactions zone two let's talk about zone two so that's a little further from the house um this zone usually uses animals to do kind of pruning fertilizing and tilling um the plants that are here don't need a lot of input from the gardener and you know ideally want to be pretty resistant to um you know a lot of damage from things so like think orchard with chickens right or orchard with poultry that's kind of the classic example of a zone two you know orchard and fruit trees 
I don't need a lot of input from you as a gardener um, but they provide food sources for you know the animals right orchards and stuff can provide food with um, you know windfall produce and stuff and underripe produce um, it was fairly common in the early 1900s 1800s um, and earlier to kind of turn out animals onto the orchard at the end of fall when you know people had harvested what they wanted um, it wasn't uncommon to then turn out animals into there to kind of finish off picking up the windfall fruit and things that were there that were not you know necessarily good enough for the humans to eat but were fine for the pigs or the chickens or the geese or whatever um to eat so zone two think things that don't need a lot of tending to by the gardener zone three is further from the house um it is a cropping area um this could be animals like sheep goats cattle on you know a, a pasture but it could also be cereal crops like corn or wheat and it's an area where animals can be placed to eat any surplus um so if you've been growing like wheat or oats or something you know you've harvested stuff and then there's all the stubble and things that are left on the ground you could turn the animals out on there to eat any surplus you know and then their manure is fertilizing the ground zone four um is known as an agroforest uh zone but it's really a carefully curated forest that is um managed in with sustainable techniques but it's a, a forest that's going to provide wood for timber and fuel for the home but also things like mushrooms medicinal plants and foods um it could also be for other useful plants like dyes or gums right the agroforest is managed using things like coppicing um, which is where you are managing um, trees and shrubs to be able to take poles and smaller sticks and things that you can then use in you know a myriad of different items right from basketry and weaving fences to you know using it in the fire um, so there's different things that you could do there but also you could use larger grazing animals that can browse and take care of that area through their normal day-to-day -day feeding and manuring activities and zone five these are natural ecosystems that are in place they're often um, protecting water soil and wildlife and they're the furthest from the home but these are areas that if they're already in place in your backyard that you want to preserve. We don't want to change these. We want to keep them as is. But usually they're the furthest away from the home, right? Wildlife doesn't tend to want to be up close and personal to our homes usually. I mean, rodents are a different matter. But, you know, generally speaking, like wildlife doesn't want to be where humans and things are. So the beginning of the design process in permaculture design is with what's known as a sector analysis of the area and it really begins as a map or a plan that identifies things that are off-site but impact the space that you are designing so let's take the sun that's an easy one right it causes light and shade to change in the garden um, but sector analysis could also include things like the movement of wildlife like when i see the deer trails on my homestead right i'm able to see where these deer are coming in to my property and then they interact with my property and then there's other trails where they go off and leave right 
it could also be things like prevailing winds um what about water right maybe you've got a stream that's coming on your property but also it could be things like how water is coming off the roof of your home and how that goes down onto your backyard for example it could also be things like vehicle access or people access right maybe you've got a little playground area in your yard right and how how do the kids move to that playground area and last week your homework was to get out and take some pictures of where you're going to design your permaculture space and to take pictures at different times of the day well, this week your homework is to draw up at least three maps of the area. Now, this might be as easy as taking a picture from a map online, right, of your property and then printing it out. So you could take a, you know, a little screenshot of the area. You can print it out and then start marking out or, you know, drawing on that printout, right? It's kind of helpful. I've done that before. Um, and that's kind of super helpful in being able to see like the big picture, you know, from space down onto, you know, what it is that you're working with. Um, but of course, depending on when those pictures were taken of your property, um, you know, you might, it might be super old. There might be trees and things there or buildings there that were not there, or it may not reflect trees and buildings that are now in place. So, you know, you could use that as a starting point, but also if you're, you know, wanting something a bit more accurate, then you can go out and sketch, you know, draw up a map yourself. Doesn't need to be super fancy. Doesn't really need to be to scale. So don't worry about, you know, having to whip out your tape measure and figure things out. Like it's, it's just a very rough sketch at this point, right? So either's fine. You can use, you know, a map online that you've printed or you can draw up the map yourself, right? Just use whatever makes sense to you. But on one map, we want to be starting to mark those things off site that are influencing different areas of our property. So we want to be marking out north, south, east and west on the map. We want to be mapping the direction of the sun. We want to be mapping the prevailing wind. Um, maybe you've got a really nice view out of your back door that you really want to keep. Where is that? Um, is there areas where, you know, fire comes through? Um, that you need to be aware of like for certain areas certainly here in the US um, but also in Australia there's places where you know we need to be thinking about fire safety and if we have you know forest fires where do they typically come from you know because a lot of those might be driven by the winds that are um, forcing the fire through so what are some of those things that we need to be thinking about um, is there um, a space where animals are getting into your property? Um, where is it that you typically walk through the backyard? So in my yard, for example, there is a, a route that we take um, when I'm walking with the dogs and it's, you know, a very distinctive route. Like, is this a route that I would be keeping on the property as the design's changing? Probably. Does this um, route that I take impact kind of how and where I go to other areas of the property? Yes, it does. So having some knowledge about those things and being able to mark them out on the map is going to um, help set you up with some of the design elements that we're going to be talking about later. So kind of get those things on um, your first map. 
On the second map, I want you to start marking out the zones that you already have on the property. So I don't want you to like start thinking about where the zones are going to be in your design, but what do you already have? And then on the third map, I want you to start marking out your sun and shade pattern. So this is where those photos and things from last week are coming in. Like where is the early morning shade, right? You want to color that in in one, you know, color of pencil, right? Where's the shade at mid morning? Let's use another color, right? What about midday? Use another color, right? Let's let's kind of mark those areas out, right? What about in the late afternoon? Mark that shade in a different color. Your light patterns are going to change in the summer versus winter. So it's really important to think about shade when, you know, trees are in full leaf if you're doing this in winter. But also if you're doing this in winter, you need to know that your shadows are going to be longer than what they are in the summer, certainly in the northern hemisphere. So if you have photos of your yard from different times of the year, you can use those to, to help you figure out where shade is going to be in your yard. And remember, why is the light and shade important? Plants need over eight hours of sunlight to be able to grow well. Shady conditions are going to make your plants grow smaller and fruiting plants like tomatoes or peppers may not ripen. And even with fruits like um your stone fruits so things like peaches or nectarines and even apples might struggle to ripen if they're in overly shady conditions so that's why it's really important to have that information handy where is those light patterns currently on your property because once we know where those are we can start to leverage what is already there and start designing things that are going to succeed in the space that you already have so it's a shorter episode this week because you've got quite a bit of homework and I want to give you guys time to get out there and start having a go at planning some of this stuff for permaculture. So let me know how your plans are going over in the Facebook group. Until next time, I hope your garden grows beautifully and I will see you all next week.